Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jamel Brinkley, on his latest collection of stories, Witness. Jamel Brinkley is the author of A Lucky Man, which won the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence and was a finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, the Story Prize, the John Leonard Prize and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. He currently teaches at the Iowa Writers Workshop and today we're here to talk about Jamel's latest collection which is Witness. Jamel, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us first of all then how you would describe this collection. Oh, yeah, I think that this is a collection made up of stories that investigate the idea of a witness, um, that investigate the idea of characters who are being pushed to see more than they can reasonably bear, who are being pushed to see what they need to see instead of what they merely want to see. And then in the act of that seeing, what do they do? What action do they take or not take? And how does this collection relate, if at all, to the collection A Lucky Man? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in many ways, I think it's kind of a departure from A Lucky Man. I'm sure my sensibility is still there and my interest in character, my interest in New York City as a setting. But in many ways, I was responding to the idea that I had written or that I was a writer of masculinity, you know, that that was sort of my thing. And while I was very much interested in masculinity, I felt a little boxed in by that label. And so I wanted to sort of expand my range. But I do think that this story shares with that first collection an acute interest in character and an acute interest in contemporary New York City. And so tell us how these how the stories in this collection came together, sort of over what sort of time period? You know, the bulk of the stories probably came together over the course of four or five years. I would say 2018 to 2022. Although one story in the collection, the one that's currently titled Arrows, was actually drafted. The first draft or the first iteration of that story was is... Uh, over 10 years ago. You say currently titled, as if that could possibly change in the future. 
Well, it, it, it had another title that I'm embarrassed about. Um, so I, I, you know, when I first think of that story, sometimes I remember that first embarrassing title and, and this Arrows is a much better title. You mentioned that the, the story is uh, set in New York City. We can be even more specific than that, maybe, because in the main, it's Brooklyn, and they touch on different ways in how, you know, things like gentrification and its effects on the community there. So tell us something about the setting. Yeah, so um, I was raised in Brooklyn and the Bronx, and you're right that most of these stories take place in Brooklyn. Uh, the story Arrows that I just mentioned takes place in Westchester. But yeah, so I, I think I was very interested in issues like gentrification, issues like deed theft that affect African-Americans disproportionately. And a lot of the reading that I've done about those topics has focused on the effects of those things in New York City and in Brooklyn in particular. And we'll come back to some of those issues as we touch on the um, the individual stories. And you mentioned the idea about the previous book being mainly focused on masculinity um, or to be thought of such. And yeah, there were some really, really great, vivid women characters in this book, which we'll talk about as we go along. But also, I think much more themes of um, family and maybe even more so parents um and i mean the the story arrow particularly is 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 one which uh, we'll, we'll focus on when we actually arrows when we get to it um particularly about the influence of parents but yeah just tell us something about writing about family and parenting yeah i think what it may be is that i've i've sort of reached a point in my life where a lot of my friends have become parents of young children um and when i'm looking at my own mother for instance, as, you know, someone who's getting a bit older and puts me in a reflective mood or just, you know, has me thinking about that role, you know, seeing my own mother, seeing my friends who are now fathers and mothers um, and their challenges that they're facing. So I kind of want, I don't have any children of my own, but um, I'm certainly led by my curiosity about what it means to be a parent, uh, what it means to have this person or these other people who come from you, but are very different from you in a lot of ways, probably, and that, you know, you want to um, care for, you want to nurture, but who may be resistant to those attempts at, at care and, and nurture, and maybe your own attempts at, at being a caretaker and being a nurturer are um, sometimes mistaken. Sometimes, you know, you make mistakes with these people. And so I was really interested in, in a bunch of these stories and thinking about that relationship you know, people who are intimately bound, live together in the same space, but who may be entirely different people. Um, and just the enormous responsibility you have as a caretaker, as a parent for someone else, and all the dramas that can take place, you know, within the, the sort of tight framework of that relationship, um, I was really interested in thinking about and investigating. So we'll, we'll go through a number of the stories. Uh, maybe we'll try and touch on all of them, but we'll see how we go. The first story, Blessed Deliverance, um, which, I mean, tackles that idea of um, the, the gentrification of the community head-on via a, um, a rabbit rescue shop. Um, but I wanted to talk particularly about the character that the um, narrator and his friends are observing called Headass. Where does he come from? Yeah, you know, well, the, the the name is sort of, you know, it comes out of, you know, the, of a vernacular um, Black American tradition, like someone who's a, 
who's a head ass is this sort of a nuisance or a, a someone who's um, annoying or not very smart. You know, if someone is has is engaging in strange behavior, you might call it head ass behavior. You know, in an adjectival sense. But yeah, so this character in the story, who's essentially, you know, he's homeless or unhoused. He's sort of this neighborhood figure, um, the kind of neighborhood figure you can find in lots of neighborhoods in New York City, in Brooklyn, or in the Bronx, or whatever. Everyone knows who this person is. Although you may not know exactly where they live, they may not have a regular place to live. They just sort of wander around in the streets. And yeah, this kind of neighborhood presence that you kind of tolerate or make fun of even. You may have a nickname for them instead of knowing their actual name. Um, so I was thinking about all those things. And I also like to think of Headass as a sort of literary cousin to a, a different character in a story by a writer named Henry Dumas um, called the Ark of Bones, he has a character called Head Eye, um, who was also kind of this nuisance character who was following the narrator of that story around. And so the, the character in my story, though, is, is again, this figure that the narrator and his friends sort of tolerate. Um, not very well, actually, but he sort of pops up in this uh, new rabbit rescue that's shown up in the neighborhood. And I think what the story is trying to do is to sort of track not only the gentrification and the disillusion of this friend group, uh, the narrator and his friends are nearing the end of high school, but also the narrator coming to a different understanding of this character known as Headass. And the next story, The Let Out, has an incredibly vivid character, Ramona, who I want you to tell us something about. But this is a story where our narrator finds out maybe a little too much about the past lives of his parents but um yeah tell me something about who ramona is yeah ramona i had a lot of fun writing this character so so ramona is a sort of this middle-aged woman who lives out in california now though in the story she's visiting brooklyn um the setting of the story is based on the brooklyn museum and i think of this character as someone who who had a certain kind of love in her life and lost that love and has never had anything uh, to replace it. And so the narrator encounters her at this museum, this event that takes place at the museum every month, just as the Brooklyn Museum has a monthly event that gathers people from all over New York City. What I liked about that setting is that you know, random encounters of that kind would happen, maybe not you know, to the degree that it happens in this story, but I personally had the experience of bumping into people that I hadn't seen in years. Um, and I like that kind of setting that can make these strange encounters happen. But, you know, I wrote this story as kind of a response to another story, a story called The Mistress by Gina Berrio. And the main character in that story, the point of view character, she's not the narrator, but the point of view character in that story is a woman who sees the son of a former lover. And, but the story is focused on her and her thinking and her, you know, her, her sense of what it means to encounter this young boy who is connected to a man from her past. But my curiosity was about the son in that story. And so I decided that I was going to write kind of a, 
a conversation story, but from the other perspective. And obviously the setting is entirely different. The relationship is entirely different. Um, and I had to imagine quite a lot. But I like the idea of a similar kind of encounter, but from the perspective of the younger person who really doesn't know what happened and who has the full weight of, a, of this discovery, kind of a family secret come down on him over the course of the story. And I had a lot of fun thinking about, you know, what, what it would need for this, for this young man to encounter a woman like this. So both stories we've talked about so far, the first two stories in the collection, you've you've said are responses to somebody else's stories yeah. from a different perspective. So is that a way that you approach stories in general, or have we just coincidentally talked about the two where that happens? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think I think comfort. I mean, I'm sorry. I think the let out is probably more of a response story. Because I'm responding to um, sort of the whole narrative and kind of reversing it and then imagining myself into that reversal. With um, Blessed Deliverance, it's less a response to that other story. It just so happens to be a a kind of a a character that is a faint echo of my head-ass character and this head-eye character. But the two stories really have nothing else in common. So, But occasionally I do like to talk back to other stories, you know, the way that a writer like Ian Lee is often writing back to William Trevor, or the way that, you know, John Updike is sort of rewriting Araby in his story A.M.P., or, you know, there are various stories called The Shawl that are sort of responding to each other. I do think that, you know, when, when we talk about writers writing what they know, oftentimes what writers know other writing, other stories, other literatures, and we're also revising and, and responding to the literature that we read. And so I would say that maybe four or five out of the 10 stories in this collection are partaking in that tradition. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jamel Brinkley, and we're talking about his latest story collection, Witness. And Jamel, you just before we we broke, you mentioned the story, the name of the story, Comfort, which is the one I want to talk about next, in which we see a a character called Simone who's in stasis in her apartment, not really able to move on from an event that is, you know, all too familiar to us on the news, which is her brother has basically been murdered by a police officer. Tell us something about this story. Yeah, so this is this is a story that I think of as um, what might be called an aftermath story. So the most dramatic thing has already happened, um, and that's the murder of, of Simone's brother. And what's useful about having something like an aftermath story is that you get to look at how have things changed? You know, the bright lights, the flash, the noise of the dramatic thing has been sort of pushed to the side, but there are still resonances. There's still this radioactivity of the dramatic thing. And I kind of want to investigate, you know, what is the effect of this devastating event on a sibling, you know, someone who's lost her brother in the most unimaginable, horrible way. Essentially, what does a typical day look like for her now, um, and I kind of wanted to, you know, by tracking this ordinary day, I kind of wanted to track the stuff that she's wrestling with, get a sense of the trauma that she's dealing with, get a sense of how she's trying to sustain herself, how she's continuing to live, um, and really, you know, sort of investigate what it's like to sit with grief. So you mentioned also the story arrows in in the first half and. Also, you talked about the idea about, you know, some of these stories being about families or people just living together in a situation where, you know, they have to rub along with each other, but might be different people. This story has that in spades because her narrator's mother lives with him and she happens to be a ghost. Yeah, I, I, um, it was fun to write a ghost story. And, you know, it took me a few drafts. This is the story that's act- that I actually drafted um, initially 10 or so years ago. And in those initial drafts, I was kind of um, coy or not fully committed to the idea of the mothers being a ghost. It was sort of ambiguous. Is she a ghost or is she not a ghost? And um, it made the story much less interesting because once I decided that Yes, she was a ghost. That decision enabled me to look at the material that the story is actually about. And I think this is actually a story about forgiveness or the unwillingness to forgive. The narrator of the story, the son of the ghost, has unpleasant memories associated with this house. And his determination in the story is to sell the house, even if it's haunted by the ghost of his mother even if it means moving his father into a retirement home. Um, He doesn't care about disrupting this home because it means that he gets to sort of extinguish this past, right? He gets to exercise, you know, this experience that, that he really feels unpleasant about. So the story is really about his determination to sell the house. And he meets up with all these resistances, the resistance of his mother, who is a ghost, the resistance of his father, who he's going to move into a retirement home, and the resistance of his young son. None of these people want him to do what he's doing. And the story sort of tracks the question of, is he going to do it, despite the resistance of the people that he's closest to? We've mentioned that a number of the stories touch on ideas of gentrification. A number of them as well touch on ideas of the 
the precarity of work nowadays in terms of people working in the gig economy and such things. One of the stories, Sahar, features a a woman, Gloria, a widow who's, I guess, lonely and she becomes fixated on who she imagines her delivery driver to be. So tell us something about this story. Yeah, I I was fascinated in this story to think about older notions of work or labor put together with these newer notions. So Gloria, the widow that you mentioned, um, has worked for many years as a um, worked many years in a hotel in New York City, decades of time in this hotel, and you know her work there has has involved certain notions of what it means to be a worker, to be a coworker. She thinks of her co-workers as colleagues or, or comrades. There's a flashback to a worker's strike in the story. And so she has very particular notions of what it means to be stable at one job for many years and to work with other people. But because of perhaps her loneliness, her curiosity, her kind of poetic sensibility, she becomes drawn to this um, delivery worker who delivers food among other jobs and One of her little touches, this woman Sahar, is that she leaves little notes attached to the packages. And I got the idea of the story actually from something like that. I I was, uh, I had ordered food once and when it was delivered, the person who delivered it left this uh, very charming note and signed it. And I was like, oh, that's such an interesting touch. And it felt like um, a kind of reaching for intimacy. And I thought, you know, I wonder a, a different kind of person might respond to this in a, a different way. And Gloria is just that kind of person who would take that kind of note, that kind of gesture, and really run with it. So the story is, is in a way, it's kind of a ghost story too, because she keeps seeing Sahar around the city and these different guises working different kinds of jobs in the gig economy. And what she ends up doing is writing back to Sahar, although she could never deliver the letters. Sahar never reads them in the story, but Gloria keeps writing them. And in the process of writing, um, to me, the story is about Gloria taking over the narration of her life. Um, The last several pages of the story are all written from Gloria's perspective. The third-person narration fades away, and Gloria becomes the, the teller of her own tale. The story, The Happiest House on Union Street, we see a a young girl watching her father and his twin brother, her uncle, arguing. This turns out to be fundamentally about a real estate scam, something that you mentioned early on in in the interview. So what were those things? What happened to people in terms of losing their deeds to their houses? Yeah, you know, I, I started seeing a number of articles in the New York Times and other papers about um, the phenomenon of deed theft. And so it's sort of this elaborate scheme where you get people to essentially sign over the ownership of their homes. Um, And there's a racial component to this. Um, Disproportionately, this is happening a lot to Black American, African American families. You know, and I kept reading these stories and, you know, reading quotes from the people who are losing their homes. And I just got to think, like, what does it feel like? to lose a home? Like, what does it really mean to lose a home? Because obviously, even on the surface, that's a heinous crime. It's a horrible thing to do to someone, that kind of dispossession, you know, and Black Americans have an awful history of being dispossessed. And so I kind of wanted to find a way to think about this issue of home and the loss of home 
And eventually, after lots of trial and error, lots of thinking, I settled on the perspective of a young girl um, who's only ever known this one home. It's the only place she's known. This home has been in her family for a couple of generations. And, you know, to, for her to sort of slowly understand what's happening, why the house is in turmoil, you know, to realize what's going to happen. That to me was, was sort of the movement of the story, that this very young person, you know, this relative innocent, would come to, to realize that her home, the two father figures that she left, her actual father and her uncle, um, were actually in the process of, of being stripped of their home. And a number of stories, um, particularly the one I want to talk about is Witness, the title story of the collection. But a number of stories in the book, to a lesser or greater extent, look at the idea around how black people are treated by the medical establishment. So tell us something about this idea and, and particularly as it relates to the story Witness. Yeah, so this is another issue that I've read a lot about. So this is an issue of medical racism, um, in particular as it affects Black people, and even more particularly how it affects Black women. And so, you know, with, with this story, as well as with some of the others that I've been talking about, you know, what I really wanted to do was to, was to sort of face this issue, something that's actually happening, you know, to, to basically tell the story of our time. Like, what are the things that are happening systemically? But open up enough space or find an angle to still concentrate on the characters, to focus on the people, not just as victims, but in their full humanity, their full personhood. So in this story, you know, Bernice as the, the sister of the narrator is sort of the victim of, of medical racism in this case. Um, but what the story is also about is sort of the responsibility that we have to our loved ones, to our family members. And so the, the tragedy here is not just the, um, the awfulness of medical racism, but also, you know, the failure to give full care, the failure to listen the ways in which we can get caught up in our own preoccupations, our own selfish desires, our own selfish needs, and not fully attend to um, those people around us who are often our relatives, our siblings, our sons and daughters, our parents, who may be deeply in need. So I really wanted to kind of focus in under the shadow of medical racism and really focus in on these people um, and how they would deal with the situation. Finally, can I get you to read us something? Yeah, um, I think I will read, when I go back to the beginning, I'm going to read from Blessed Deliverance. And I guess before I read, I'll just say that, you know, the way this story moves is that it's a very slow revelation of the narrator of the story. Much of the story is narrated in the we, the plural we, to signify the friend group. But as the story moves on, the we starts to fall away, then we realize that one person is actually telling the story. So I'll read just a couple of pages from Blessed Deliverance. Not long after dinner, Dad started crying in his room again. Usually his weeping was legible and easily classified. There had been a taxonomy of his tears. The sounds of angry heaving meant his attempts at getting a second job had resulted in some new humiliation. 
Pathetic quavering meant he wished mom would change her mind and come back to us. And so on. But the sound he was making now, which came directly through the poster of Sun Ra on the wall, was some kind of hybrid. Usually you can't decide what you want to be sad about. Usually you don't get to decide. Sometimes it all hits you at once. Sometimes you don't even know what all is hitting you. Better to let people be when they get that way, though. Earlier that summer, Antonio made a similar horrible sound when he found out exactly how ill his mother was and how much time he was likely to have left with her. Who knows what else he was figuring out, what else was baffling him. When you hear someone you love make a sound like that, the problem isn't that you don't know how to respond. It's that you lose all your reserve, the discipline and self-restraint that were actually keeping everything intact. So you take liberties. You close the door to your friend's room and begin gathering the dented soda cans and empty water bottles, arranging them in rows on his desk. You pick up every loose bit of soiled, funky clothing from the floor and the chair and drop them into the hamper in his closet. You stack the crusted cereal bowls on top of the smeared plates and neatly arrange all the used spoons and forks. With nothing but the palm of your hand, you wipe away the dust on the screen of his TV. You completely understand the power possessed by the illusion of order. So you clarify the shapes and lines of his room. When he makes the horrible sound again, you sit on the bed where he's crumpled into a heap. You clear your palms of dust and lay your body down beside his. You put your arm around him and pull him close and hold fast, your chest knocking against his back. When he turns toward your body and its offering, you kiss along a meridian of his face. First on his eye, then down beneath his cheekbone, then lightly on the leftmost edge of his mouth. You say that you're sorry, but he doesn't understand what you mean. Or maybe he doesn't want to. He decides you're requesting forgiveness for what you've just done, and he refuses to grant it. So... No matter how horrible the sound, it's best to stay very quiet and avoid calling any attention to yourself. It's best to do absolutely nothing. But if you must do something, scroll through the selection of old photos saved on your phone. Read the first few pages of your new book. Lie there gazing at the poster of Sun Ra on your wall and think about the perfect silence of outer space. Attempt to go away and get lost. Try, as a means of control, to obliterate yourself without violence. Try to endure the long waking hours and then slip unnoticed into sleep. So I've been talking to Jamel Brinkley. We've been talking about his latest collection of stories, Witness, which is out now in the UK from 40 State. Jamel, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so, so much for having me. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.